Welcome to God Knows Where. I'm Brett Harris. We are winding down this series on the stories that we avoid reading, the scriptures we don't read in church, and this week we're going to stay in John's Gospel. The closing verses of it, to be exact, for this snark-filled and strangely pointed conversation between Jesus and Peter. If you listened to last week's episode, you know that I teased even more about the upcoming Advent project I'm putting together with my friends Adam and Thomas. It's coming out next week, and to learn more about it, how to purchase it, everything you need to know, follow the show on Instagram and Facebook and on our new website, www.godknowswherepod.com, for all the latest updates. Tell your friends, tell your family, it's going to be a really fun way to get ready for Christmas together and with your families and with your loved ones, wherever you are. Thanks for listening to the show and supporting the show. It's a week of giving thanks, so I hope you know how thankful I am for all of you who listen to the show. I'm also really grateful, not just for Laura Stevens Reed's latest article on Good Faith Media called Guns, Masks, and Moral Injury in Pastors, but also for the guidance she offered me when I was a pastor. Be sure to read her article and check out her work this week. Happy Thanksgiving, y'all. I hope you have a great week. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Mind your business. A reading from John 21. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. He was the one who had reclined next to Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, Who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. So the rumor spread in the community that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and has written them, and we know that his testimony is true. But there are also many other things that Jesus did. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. What is that to you? Of all the questions Jesus asks, this is one of my favorites. I love it. There's clearly frustration in his voice. He's had it with Peter, and I think we should understand. From beyond the grave, Jesus has returned and helped the disciples catch a literal boatload of fish and cook them for breakfast, and he's just given Peter the keys to the kingdom in the verses that lead up to what I just read. He's handed Peter the responsibility for caring for his sheep in his absence. Right before this little discussion, Jesus asked Peter three times if he loved him. And when Peter says yes each time, Jesus tells him to care for his flock, to be their next shepherd. Jesus has just declared that it's through Peter that the church will come into being. He's commissioned Peter with two words, follow me. And what is Peter's first question to Jesus? What about him? He wants to know what John is getting. He's been hearing that John who many believe is the beloved disciple. He's been hearing that John might get to go on to eternal life with Jesus without any more responsibility. He thinks John might be getting a better deal than he got. And I'd like to think that if we'd just been given that amount of responsibility, if Jesus had just trusted us to that degree with his ministry, that we'd have different questions 
than what Peter asks. Where do I lead them? How do you tend sheep? What do I do about the goats? But we know ourselves, don't we? And if we're honest with ourselves, we'd probably ask the same thing because we do ask the same thing all the time. What about? It's a frame for just about every bad question that we ask. It's a refrain we use so often. New words were coined in the 1970s. The whatabouts and their whataboutism. To describe those of us who are always asking, well, what about this? In response to questions that we didn't like, or questions we didn't want to answer. And it's most often used in three of the most contentious arenas of human life. Politics, war, and homes with multiple small children running about. We hear politicians cry all the time, what about this? What about what they said? What about what they did? All the time, as they're asked pointed questions about their votes or their stances or their own words that contradict themselves. Military leaders will often demand answers about their opponents' actions as justification for their own aggression. What about what they've done? And children, brothers and sisters, use it all the time when they get caught hitting or pinching or slapping their sibling and wonder why their parents aren't also reprimanding their brother or sister because, you can probably say it with me, he or she hit me first. There's a really good chance in the next few days that we're going to hear some what about questions as we sit around tables and talk with families, praying that no one brings up politics or religion or our parenting, but knowing full well that they might, and they might just start a debate that will be riddled with what about questions. And pro tip, in this case, if this happens to you, the best response to a what about question that I've found is, what about it? It's a mess. So much is a mess right now that most of us can agree about the messiness, and want to move on. But usually, what about is a deflection, though, isn't it? When we don't want to talk about what we've done or not done, we shift the conversation to what someone else has or hasn't or might yet still do. But Peter doesn't use this what about question this way. I think he genuinely wants to know what Jesus has to say about the beloved disciple. Because Jesus didn't end with giving Peter the keys to the kingdom. He also told him that it wasn't going to be easy and that it wasn't going to end pretty for Peter. It was going to end just almost exactly where Jesus' life ended, in martyrdom. And Jesus says nothing about that in regards to his beloved disciple, whom many think is John. Jesus gives him no responsibility, no commission, says nothing about his death, leaving Peter and others to assume, and we all know what happens when we assume, that John is getting off easy with a long life and no hardships. What about him is a valid question at this point. Jesus has said nothing else to any of the other disciples about their lives beyond Jesus' departure, but Jesus makes it clear that it might be a valid question, but it is completely irrelevant. It's the wrong question to ask. In not so many words, Jesus says the same thing that Paul will come to write to the folks in Thessalonica some 20 years later. 
mind your own business. Peter's gotten wrapped up in the same business that we get wrapped up in all the time when we ask these what about questions. Peter's gotten wrapped up in the business of comparison. Peter wants to gauge where his life is in relation to those around him. Did he get a better deal? Did he get a worse one? Who got more? Who got less? Who's doing better? And Jesus, as best as he can, despite feeling like a frustrated parent talking to children who won't listen, reminds Peter that the point of comparison he needs to worry about isn't another disciple. It's Jesus. It's how his life matches up with Jesus' life. Will he tend his sheep like Jesus? Will the sheep follow him because of how he leads them? Will some ornery goats decide being like sheep isn't that bad after all once they see what a good shepherd Peter can be? These are the questions Peter needs to be asking because the beloved disciple will have other questions to ask of himself and his life and about how his own life matches up with Jesus too, not Peter. And we do too. And the questions we ask should never be about comparing my life to yours or your life to mine or comparing someone else's decisions or stances or votes to the ones we made or would have made if we were in that position. The questions we ask should all be about comparing our own lives to Christ. What about my life mirrored Jesus' approach today? What didn't? When we get lost in comparing our life, our call, our journey to someone else's, the only thing that happens is we lose. We lose time, we lose energy, we lose focus, we lose sight of the path that God has carved out for us to walk. The opportunities God is putting before us to shape the world before us into God's kingdom. The challenges ahead that will require courage and trust and faith like Jesus to move through. Comparison is just a thief of joy. And we can't afford to lose these things by worrying about what God may or may not have in store for someone else. We only risk losing our joy and our light and our hope if we do. For all the work I do, I have to spend a lot of time on social media, way more time than I would like. And if you want to talk about a thief of joy, the comparison social media can lead us to can suck the joy right out of our days. Sure, it can bring joy too, like the tears of laughter that were streaming down my face the other night after being reminded of Sharon Weiss's burnt Marie Callender's pie. But more often, it brings these points of comparison, how we parent, how we dress, how we vote, what we eat, where we travel, what we think is funny, on and on and on. It brings these points of comparison that distract us into measuring ourselves up against the wrong goals. We can't let that happen. We have to mind our own business. And I firmly believe that if we mind our own business, if we keep our focus on the path Jesus lays in front of each of us, that the roads we each walk will lead to the same place. So mind your business this week. Attend to what you can control. When you're tempted to compare your life to someone else's, stop and measure it up against Jesus instead. Ask yourself if 
what you're doing is driving you toward where God has called you. And if it's not, find your way back on the path. If it is, keep going. Because when we devote our time and our energy to living our lives in ways that line up with Jesus, all of our individual paths will start to converge. We begin to move in the same direction. We begin to move forward with collective momentum and energy. And we can rejoice that God has called each of us, each in our own way, to do our part, to play our role in guiding us toward the kingdom but only if we first mind our own business. God Knows Where is written, produced, and edited by me, Brett Harris, with music by Thomas Steinwinder and Michael Trest, and unwavering support from my wife, Elizabeth. If you like what you hear, I'd encourage you to share God Knows Where with your friends and family and give us a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. It'll mean the world to me and it'll help more people find God Knows Where. Thanks in advance for your help and for being here and for listening. Until next time, take these words from William Sloan Coffin with you. May God give you the grace never to sell yourself short. Grace to risk something big for something good. Grace to remember that the world is too dangerous for anything but truth and too small for anything but love. So may God take your minds and think through them, your eyes and see through them, and your hearts and set them on fire.